So let me kind of lay out for you what this new year is going to look like. Um, we've had a couple weeks off, so it's kind of weird to see everybody again. Uh, it's good to see everybody again, but um, it, is, it has been a while. It feels like forever. Uh, and so in this new year, kind of the course that we're setting from January to May is this. Uh, we're going to start tonight, and we're going to spend about five to seven weeks in 2 Corinthians. And we're definitely still not going to finish it. <laughs> Uh, but we're going to take a break at the end of February. We're going to spend one week talking about fasting and what it is, why we do it, uh, what the scriptural mandate for that um, actually is. Uh, and then we're actually going to put it into practice and we're going to celebrate Lent together leading into Easter. Uh, and so Lent sort of wraps up at the end of April. And then in May, we're going to talk about faith and work. Uh, one of the big things that came back when we sent out those surveys at the beginning of, or the end of this year rather, is that a whole lot of you are not in the college part of the college and career area in our name. Uh, and the other thing that we noticed is that for a lot of you guys who are in your careers, you're trying to figure out what it looks like to take what I believe on Sunday and integrate it with what I do throughout the week. And so we're, we're going to talk about that and how the Bible kind of sets the tone for what our occupations look like and what it looks like to be an engineer or an artist or a teacher or a historian to the glory of God. And then maybe we're going to finish 2 Corinthians in the summer. At least that's our effort. But we are in 2 Corinthians for the next five to seven weeks, and we're picking that up again. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be in verses 2 to 9. And if I can kind of just lay down the context again for you, because it's super important to what we're about to read. Uh, the church in Corinth that received this letter was founded by Paul sometime around 50 AD, pretty early on in his public ministry. And right out of the gate, Corinth is not looking so hot. Um, I don't know if you've watched like a, a NASCAR race or a drag race before, but when you, when you sort of get a little bit off kilter, you get these things called speed wobbles, and they can either end in one of two places, you correcting that or you hitting a wall. Uh, and Corinth, right out of the gate, just starts with speed wobbles as far as churches go. It's kind of like the beginning of Mariah Carey's performance on New Year's Day where it just <laughs> straight out of the gate is looking real bad. And so, sorry, that was the most fascinating thing I saw in all of last year. Um, but, but it starts off bad. It doesn't start off good. Corinth is not, doesn't put their best foot forward. And so Paul is continuously writing letter after letter, trying to correct them, trying to stop them from hitting a wall and having a full meltdown. But it doesn't really go well. And there comes a point at which the Corinthians say, we're tired of you telling us what to do. You're not our apostle anymore. We'll go find our own who tells us what we want to hear. And so Paul pays a personal visit to Corinth. And at least one person, we don't know all the details, but at least one of the people in Corinth stands up, maybe even on behalf of the whole church, and says, we want nothing to do with you. And they kind of just kick Paul out. So the speed wobbles are looking real, real, real bad at this point. And so Paul leaves Corinth, and he writes a letter that he calls a severe letter. He calls it a tearful letter, and it's not preserved in the New Testament. We don't know what it said, but if Paul wrote it and thinks it's pretty heavy-handed, then I can only imagine it's twice as heavy-handed as what Paul thinks it is. When I, was, when I was younger, me and my brother would be getting in like fights or arguments or just harassing each other, uh, and our parents would sort of try and gently correct us. They would say things like, all right, Travis, stop poking Justin. Okay, Justin, stop throwing things at Travis. And then the next time they would correct us, it would be a little bit more severe. 
until like they hit a wall and Betsy and Thurman snap. And, and they go, stop. And it's through like gritted teeth. It's like this real supervillain sounding command. And that's the point at which we knew it was game over and we needed to stop. And Paul's, Paul's letter to Corinth is that. It is, it is a sledgehammer. You guys have to straighten up or you're gonna implode. But he knows that they don't wanna hear that from him. So he writes the letter. He gives it to a man named Titus. He sends Titus to Corinth and he says to Titus, you tell me what they say. I'm gonna meet you in Troas. And Paul goes to this city. But Titus isn't there. And Paul's so concerned by that, he says that even though he had this door to preach the gospel, even though he had this opportunity to continue to do his work, he was so upset by the fact that he didn't see Titus that he, he just left. He couldn't stand to be there, and he goes to a city called Macedonia. And he sits in Macedonia waiting on word. Now, by the time he's written 2 Corinthians, he knows how the Corinthians responded. Ultimately, they received the letter, they repented, uh, and they've begun the process of setting their course straight and realigning their church with how it ought to be. And so Paul writes this letter sort of as a uh, stamping out any last bit of resistance. He writes the letter to answer any lingering questions that they might have, but he kind of incorporates his own personal experiences into it. It's almost like, a, hey, here's what you put me through when you were pitching a temper tantrum. And so there's parts where Paul kind of tells his story, and then there's parts where he addresses their questions, and there's parts where he comes back to his story. And this is one of those parts where he comes back to his story. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 10, where Paul says this. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you. For I said before, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I had made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So, you kind of know the background, where Paul has gone to Corinth, and been kicked out of Corinth, and goes to Troas, and Titus isn't there, and then he goes to Macedonia. And in verse 5, he's brutally honest about his emotional and physical state when he gets into this city. He says that when he came into Macedonia, he and the people that he was with, he says, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Now, sometimes when Paul talks about the body, uh, he's using it to refer to the literal physical body as we would. But sometimes Paul talks about the body not just to describe your physical self, but the whole of who you are. Because the reality is human beings are not just the sum of organs and limbs uh, and ligaments. You could pile all of those up in the middle of a room and still not have a human being. It would actually just be really gross. Um, 
And Paul is, in this instance, using the term body to describe his whole self, his physical being, his emotional state, his mental state, his spiritual state. He says that when he came to Macedonia, there was no rest for him. He was afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. And what you tend to see when you look at studies and the the way that we work is that when our external circumstances are bad, maybe you're in conflict with a friend or a loved one or a spouse or a romantic partner, and when things are not going well in your education or your occupation, That, in turn, plays into the way that your body functions because then you can't sleep at night. And then, because you can't sleep at night, you wake up exhausted, which means that you face these conflicts in a worse and worse emotional state to where the outside and internal pressures ultimately can form this perfect storm that just breaks people. They become exhausted and weary. And sometimes that exhaustion spirals into something that we might even call depression. And there's no question when you read this letter that Paul finds himself in a state of depression. Now, he didn't see Sigmund Freud to diagnose it because he wasn't around in this day. But it's apparent that Paul is fighting depression and discouragement and despair. The way that he actually describes it is he describes himself as being downcast. And that word has a long history in scripture. You can go through the Psalms and again and again and again, the psalmists describe themselves as being downcast in their spirit, in their soul. And when you read Psalms like Psalm 42 that talk about why are you downcast, O my soul, what is not taking place in the psalmist's life is this sort of ho-hum, I'll have a, a better time tomorrow. This is a deep sort of grieving a deep sense of despair, which to me flies in the face of the common prosperity gospel teaching that if you're depressed, it's because you don't love Jesus enough and you don't have enough faith. The reality is that the Holy Spirit is inspiring people who are depressed to pen the very pages of scripture. And I would venture to say that if you were to look through the whole of church history, Some of the most prominent and important and significant leaders in the history of the church have experienced seasons of heaviness and despair and grief like you would not believe. You can look at Paul, for example, but you can look at some modern people. Charles Spurgeon, who's considered to be one of the greatest Baptist preachers of all time, at 32 years old, ascended into his pulpit to teach his church, and in the middle of his sermon, he sort of broke out and he said, I am subject to depressions of spirit so fearful I hope none of you ever get to such extreme wretchedness as to which I go. There's a whole book written on it called The Sorrows of Spurgeon, and there were times where this incredible preacher was so depressed he would get out of bed and preach and get back in bed and cry for days, and he didn't know why. You can look back even further to somebody like Martin Luther, who's everybody's favorite reformer, And Martin Luther, at certain points in his life, would enter into these seasons of depression that were so bad that his family would have to hide the sharp objects in the house because they were afraid that he would hurt himself. And there was no reason for it. He would just spiral out. So it seems like depression sometimes sets in on God's people. This downcastness that Paul describes. And I would venture to say that there's probably some people in this room who have 
or are currently walking through that season of heaviness and that weight. And what Paul says next should be of unspeakable comfort to you because he says this, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. What Paul says in this one sentence is that if you find yourself right now or in the future in such a season of darkness and despair and heaviness and weightiness and grief, he says that God is not far from you in the midst of this. He's not absent in your dark night of the soul. He remains the God of all comfort who comforts the downcast no matter how dark the night of your life might feel. Pay attention to how God comforts Paul because it's strange upon the first reading. He says that God, the God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. So Paul has left Troas because Titus isn't there and he goes to Macedonia and lo and behold, he finds Titus and Titus has good news about what's going on in Corinth. But it's not just Titus's good news. The reality is that Paul says that he was just comforted by the fact that Titus was there. And that's how God comforted him in his downcastness. I wonder if you've seen the last of the Lord of the Rings movies, The Return of the King, because none of the Hobbit movies count at all. And in it, probably the last hour or so, is just unbelievably bleak and dark, right? Like all the characters that you grew up with as a kid are getting killed on screen, and it was incredibly traumatic for me as a 12-year-old. And and there's just this relentless sort of uh, fog of war that hangs over the latter half of the movie. And In fact, like the last 20 minutes are literally taking place in a region called Mount Doom. Like it's as cheery as you're gonna get, and the primary color palette is black and red for lava and ash. And it's just this ridiculously bleak latter half of the film until all of a sudden the light sort of breaks through. Uh, And Frodo, who's a hobbit, in case you're ignorant and unspiritual and don't know what that is. um, (laughs) I really shouldn't have said that. Um, Frodo wakes up in this bed. And it's the first time that there's been any sort of light in the movie in like 45 minutes. And one by one... Through the door of his room, he sees all of the friends that he thought were lost to him for good. And it feels like, for the first time in a long time, somebody actually smiles on screen. And I wonder if it wasn't something like that for Paul, after this long string of misery, to see Titus in Macedonia. And for the first time in a long time, there's some smiling that takes place. Because it's not just what Titus says, it's just the fact that Titus is there that God uses to comfort him. And I think that says something to the power of friendship and the gift that friendship is from the God who gives every good and perfect gift because it is this friendship that God uses as a means to bring comfort to Paul in the midst of his despair. Augustine talks about the importance of his friends in the midst of his darkest moments. He says it like this, particularly when I am worn out by the upsets of the world, I cast myself without reservation 
on the love of those who are especially close to me. I know I can safely entrust my thoughts and considerations to those who are aflame with Christian love and have become faithful friends to me, for I am entrusting them not to other humans, but to the God in whom they dwell and by whom they are who they are. The reality is, as you walk through the pages of scripture, what you see really clearly is that friendship is not simply a gift from God, although it is absolutely that. It is also the way in which God comforts his people in the middle of darkness. And that's how he comforts Paul in the middle of his darkness. And if friendship's not just a gift, but it's a means of comfort, then you and I as Christians, we should strive with everything in us to take friendship seriously and to not practice some uh, petty or trivial form of friendship, to not, to not practice the Facebook definition of what a friend is, but to seek out an uncommon sort of friendship that doesn't jump ship in the middle of people's dark nights of the soul, that doesn't jettison people when they go through seasons of darkness, If friendship is a means by which God comforts his people, we have to work hard as Christians to be long-suffering friends who mourn with people, who weep with people, who grieve with people, but who also celebrate and feast and rejoice with people. So Paul is comforted by Titus' presence. But it's not just that. In verse seven, he says, it's not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, referring to the Corinthians. As he told us of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is now, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So, Paul is comforted first by Titus' presence as a friend, but he's comforted second by Titus' news, which is namely that the Corinthians have received the harsh letter and have realized the error of their ways and are trying to fix it. And it's important to pay attention here to the way that Paul becomes a friend to the Corinthians in the form of the letter that he sends them. See, there's this cultural narrative that I think is is really curious and doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about it, namely that good friends are the sort of people who will never disagree with you on anything or think you're wrong. So a couple weeks ago, actually a couple days ago, I was reading this article on some website, and it was was a testimonial of this uh, young woman who struggled with mental illness. Uh, But she diagnosed herself with that mental illness before she went to a psychologist. And it turned out that that everything that she had diagnosed herself with was true and that she really did have all of the things that she'd listed out. But there's this strange line in her article where she says, I diagnosed myself with these things and if anybody ever told me that I was wrong, I would jettison them as friends and never speak to them. And I thought to myself, that's a little bit strange that you would be willing to allow someone into your life Uh, to allow them to speak into your life, to count someone as a a friend only so long as they tell you what you want to hear, only so long as they agree with you in every jot and tittle of your personal opinion, and only so long as they affirm every decision that you make. That's a curious sort of friendship. But the reality is when, when you think about it, we've all said things like that, right? 
or heard things said like that. Things like friends have each other's backs no matter what. If your boy gets in a fight at the bar, you are expected to jump in on his side even if it's his fault and he deserves to get beat down. That's just the, the understanding of friendship. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't defend your friend if he's getting beat down. But the Bible's understanding of friendship goes deeper than just being a perpetual yes man and just kind of like dapping your friend up even when they do dumb things. The, the biblical understanding of friendship is, is informed by this reality that a true friend ought to care more for the spiritual well-being of their friend rather than what their friend thinks about them. That is the mark of a biblical and deep and rich friendship. And that's the sort of friendship and relationship that Paul has with the Corinthians. That he is willing, not because he hates them, but because he loves them, to bring the hammer out and swing the hammer real, real hard and write this difficult letter. A couple years ago, um, I was in this group text and I'm not good at this, but I just really like making fun of people. So I'm a terrible pastor in a lot of ways. And in this group text, I cracked some joke about somebody, and I made a few jokes about him before. And everybody laughed because it was super funny, and it was a brilliant joke, and, except for one person who responded in a separate text message to me. And man, if, if Paul describes what he wrote as a tearful letter, this was like a text message where she just swung the hammer. And was like, I can't believe that you keep doing this. What's wrong with you? You, you, know, you claim to be a Christian, but yet you're so mean-spirited, like unloaded on me. It was one of those text messages in iMessage where it's so long that you have to push the arrow to read the rest of it, which you know is bad, always bad. That's never a good thing. And the benefit of receiving a text message as opposed to having a face-to-face -face conversation is that you can think about what you're going to say. You should take that up sometime and actually think about what you're going to say if the confrontation comes in a text. And so I started to kind of cycle through how I was going to respond to this. And so I said to myself something like, who do you think you are? And then I went, I know who she thinks she is because she's been my friend for five years. Okay, that's not going to work. Um, and then I cycled through, well, she ought to know that this is a joke. But as I started to think about it, I was like, you know what? I know it's not really a joke. Like, I know that I don't particularly like this person, and that's why I keep making jokes about them. So she probably knows me better than I know myself. And then I cycled through something like, you're taking this way too seriously, but the reality is that I'm the one that kept doing it over and over and over again, so I'm the one who made it serious. And finally, I kind of came to my wit's end as far as ways to defend myself, and I just started to realize, you know, her calling me to repentance uh, was not a curse to be shunned, but it was a gift to be embraced. And so I just responded and said, you're right, I'm sorry. And that's the sort of friendship that Paul commits himself to with the Corinthians. And that's the sort of friendship that you and I ought to be committed to as we engage with one another in the church. But there's some dangers that can come with this. Pay attention to how Paul reacts to the way that his letters received. He says in verse 8, if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Because here's, here's the reality, and I've, I've found myself in this position many, many, many times. It's really easy to grow really fond of being the person who swings the hammer of truth. 
There's a way in which we can, we can come to really like the feeling of dropping truth bombs on people and being the right one on the right side of the argument. We can really love finding Wittenberg doors onto which we nail our 95 thesis of everything wrong with somebody. Paul is not excited about the fact that he had to write the letter. And when we in our friendships have to have these conversations and call each other to repentance, you shouldn't be excited about that. It is not a healthy thing to thrive on conflict or to delight in confrontation. It's actually sinful. So we ought not to be the sort of people who are always looking for someone to make a mistake so we can send them our tearful letter and tell them to fix it. And I'll tell you this, high school and college Travis was a nightmare of a person when it came to this. I found one of the books that I read um, while I was on staff here and when I was in college, and I underlined almost every single paragraph and scribbled everything out as heresy and thought everything was, and I was wrong. Like I reread the book and said, I would have punched college Travis in the face because I, I just delighted in swinging the hammer. But that's not the sort of friend that you or I ought to be, and that's not the sort of friend that Paul is. He says, I do not rejoice because you were grieved. It's not exciting to me that I had to write this. I rejoice because you were grieved into repenting. So we take a cue from Paul and that we don't delight in having to have these conversations with one another. But man, it's easy to, to fall on the wrong side of the Corinthians. There's not a lot about the Corinthians that should be repeated and emulated in the Christian life. But they at least got this right. When Paul said repent, they said you're right. And they repented. And we can learn something from that. So if you're the sort of person that, that no matter how gentle or how gracious somebody comes to you with correction, you always put your fists up, you need to learn from Corinth here because your real enemy is not the person who's willing to say some hard things to you so that you look more like Jesus. Your real enemy is the person who's too afraid to do that. And so we have to be a people who are committed to godly friendship, the sort that can comfort one another when we're downcast, but committed also to the sort of friendship that doesn't rejoice in dropping some, some weighty truth and doesn't shrink back when we're called to look more like Jesus and to turn from our sin and to walk in a holiness that honors the name of the one who we bear. And so I pray that we are a ministry like that, that we have deep friendships here, that they're real friendships, that if you find yourself in a season of heaviness and despair and depression, I pray you find people in this ministry and we are the sort of ministry that will walk with you through that and comfort you in the midst of it. But I pray that we're a ministry that's honest about the truth and the things of God and what it means to honor him in the way that we live. And I pray that we're a people who receive that gracefully. And in this one way, we walk like the Corinthians and we repent. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious to us to give us your word. In Christ, you have confessed that the word is truth. And in your high priestly prayer, you pray that we would be sanctified in it. So God, I pray that we would be a people who are steeped in your word so that in turn we might walk in the truth. Man, for, for those of us who are afraid to say difficult things, give us boldness. For those of us who are too defensive to receive the call to repentance, give us humility. 
for those of us who um, maybe even now have things we need to repent of, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts to bring us there and continue to work in this community of believers, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.